Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, asking for more. You can't build housing uh, without infrastructure. As Ottawa makes good on a promise to unlock billions of dollars to build rental housing, why are Canadian municipalities calling for more? And what did the Trudeau government miss with its fall economic update? Coming up, we'll speak with Halifax Mayor Mike Savage about the issue. Also... Next year, we will spend more on debt interest in Canada than we do on health care. It's not just the Conservative leader who's raising the alarm. Business groups are also concerned about the Trudeau government spending and the lack of any plan to get back to a balanced budget. And... As Israel and Hamas reach a deal on a release of hostages and a four-day ceasefire, we will hear from former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but we begin tonight in Niagara Falls, New York, where the Rainbow Bridge crossing from Niagara Falls, Canada to the United States is currently closed. This follows a vehicle explosion that killed two people today at that crossing. Earlier, there were concerns what happened was terrorism related, but tonight the New York governor says there is no indication what happened was a terrorist attack. Officials are still investigating, trying to piece together what did happen. But again, Governor Kathy Hochul says this was not terrorism. She would like to calm down any speculation. And because the debris field from this explosion was wide, the Rainbow Bridge will remain closed. But other crossings from southern Ontario into New York State have been reopened. Well, let's turn now to some reaction to the government's fiscal update. With the federal government doubling down on its housing initiative yesterday, committing billions to build rental homes and to help develop more social housing. Building on the significant action we have already taken, including this fall alone, I am today announcing new measures through our economic plan to build thousands upon thousands upon thousands of new homes across the country and to build them faster. But Canada's cities are still looking for more and to talk about that we're now joined by Mike Savage, Mayor of Halifax and Chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Mayor Savage, uh, good to speak with you again. Nice to see you again, Michael. Now listen, the the Trudeau government obviously made good on this expected announcement. $15 billion for rental housing development, $1 billion for social housing. But I take it that's being greeted with what, some reservation? Is that fair to say? Well, we're very appreciative of the investments that the government has made in in housing. Um, You know, Halifax was one of the first cities to sign on to the uh, Housing Accelerator Fund, for example, with targets that we both agreed upon and make a lot of sense. Our concern with a lot of these investments is they don't come with any infrastructure money. You can't build housing uh, without infrastructure. People expect to have water when they run the taps. Uh, People expect transit. Uh, people expect some green space, some parks and things like that. That that That's just uh, a, a normal part of life. So building housing is one thing. We don't just want to build 
units where we store people. We need to build communities where people can actually live. And so we need the other orders of government to recognize that that's an important part of building the housing that we need. Okay, other orders of government, uh, which uh, of course includes you, because you know we heard it from Christian Freeland last year that Ottawa would not be able to write checks to solve every challenge. So where do, does uh, the province fit in? Where do municipalities fit in in terms of finding the funding that's needed to create this infrastructure? Well, I think it's obvious that we all need to play our role. So we want the province involved in these uh, discussions. And I think, frankly, you know, uh, uh, a meeting between the feds, the provinces, territories, and I think also with First Nations uh, governments as well is what we need. But in the meantime, we all have to play a role. So cities, what do we do in the building of housing? We, we approve it, uh, we plan for it, uh, but we don't uh, build it. We don't actually build the housing. If we're gonna build housing, it's not just a matter of saying, we'll put you know houses here, an apartment here, we'll do this here. There has to be infrastructure around them. And so to identify that we're going to spend money on rental housing uh, is a good idea. Um, you know, to look at Airbnb across the board is a good idea. These are all really good things. Um, but for us, it comes down to the fact that somebody has to build the infrastructure for the housing. You can't just put a house there with no water line into it. And, uh, you know, municipal governments simply don't have, uh, you know, the, the wherewithal or anything close to our, our revenues are not rising like federal and provincial revenues are. Uh, so we have to look at this all together. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities, they're calling for, for this new municipal growth uh, framework. Could you uh, right. walk us through that? How would that work? Well, I'll give you an example of Nova Scotia. In Nova Scotia, um, the population has been uh, growing significantly. Uh, we're, not, we're over a million people now. That's quite, quite heralded. Uh, but the growth is being driven in a lot of communities, but primarily in Halifax. 80% uh, of the new people who've come to Nova Scotia settle in Halifax. They expect certain things uh, when they settle there. They expect a house to live in. They expect transit. They expect water they expect schools and a lot of these responsibilities are the responsibility of the municipality so that's the cost side on the revenue side when they come to nova scotia they start paying income tax almost immediately they start paying sales tax in a lot of cases they're paying corporate income tax in some cases they're not paying property tax for uh, a delayed period of time in some cases um, it could be a long period of time but it also doesn't necessarily equate to the growth of the city. So we're saying if we if we all want growth, if we want to drive immigration in Canada, which we do, which I do, let's just more equitably share the revenue that comes with that. You know, there was a news article that said the provincial government in Nova Scotia last year uh, discovered two billion dollars more in revenue than they had budgeted. Two billion. The city of Halifax, with eighty some percent of the growth of Nova Scotia, we had a fifty four a million dollar increase. So the money is not accruing fairly. And if you're going to build infrastructure, then we should all look at that and say, how are we going to do it in a way that's fair and equitable? So what are you looking at here? Uh, an annual lump sum, a percentage of taxes? How, how would you work that through? Well, we're not being completely prescriptive because it would be wrong for us to say it has to be A when there may be a better appetite for B. So I think something that recognizes the growth and the fact that property tax simply does not 
keep up with the kind of growth that we're having. So, you know, we th there is a, a fund that people have called the gas tax for a number of years, set up by Paul Martin, made permanent by Stephen Harper and indexed. Um, that's an avenue that, that we think could be helpful. Uh, you could be looking at uh, a percentage of sales tax. We're open to the ideas that other orders of government uh, have. And we recognize that we're not going to come to the table with just our hands out. We want to be partners. You know, we want to build housing for citizens and communities where people can live and that we all have a role to play, but we should share that burden of that infrastructure. Okay, you know, as you, you, you talk about this, I can't help but think back because Ottawa is already, uh, as you know, getting flack from some provinces for making deals and announcements with cities instead of going through the provincial governments. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, my first reaction is let's all do it together. I'd be, I'd be delighted to have the provinces involved. The vast majority of funding that goes to cities from the feds goes through the provinces. Uh, infrastructure money, public transit money, green infrastructure, social infrastructure goes through the provincial government. Even last year when the feds agreed to provide some support for operating costs of transit, it had to go through the provincial government. Um, and that can be fine, um, but I don't think it's necessary. But if the provincial governments uh, are sensitive to that, then let's all sit down and figure it out, especially if the province is prepared to contribute to those costs in a way that makes sense. Mayor Mike Savage, really always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Good to see you, Michael. Thank you. Well, it's not just the Federation of Canadian Municipalities looking for more from Ottawa. So is the Business Council of Canada. But rather than more spending, the council wants more prudence, concerned about the government's rising debt and what that would mean for future investments into the country. With more, we're now joined by Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Goldie, always good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Listen, I'll begin with the opening line of your press release, uh, which said the federal government's uh, fall fiscal update fails to set the country's finances on a sustainable path. How does it fail to do so? Well, look, uh, this is a government that has not had a very good track record on a number of things. One is it spends a lot of money. And uh, two is whatever it says it was going to spend, it ends up spending more. Three is they make a bunch of assumptions that are very favorable on economic growth, but not so much on the spending side in terms of bringing that down. And when those things don't add up, if you have inflation, you know, if you have the possibility, which this budget or sorry, this economic statement completely uh, rules out of any kind of a recession, which is shocking, uh, given what we're seeing in, in many parts of the world and the likelihood that we may well have a slowdown. So the, the consequence really, Michael, is that leads to a credibility problem. And that's what we're saying here. We have a track record we can look at. And I think that's why what you're seeing today, the day after, the morning after and the day after is people are really seized with a fiscal question in this in this uh, statement. Okay, but you know, the Trudeau government does uh, point to its debt to GDP ratio. They say it continues and will continue to go down in the years to come. And they also say that that ratio is the best of all GDP, uh, G7 countries rather. What's wrong with that analysis? Um, look, first of all, they've had moving targets on what it is that they measure. They used to be called a fiscal anchor. It became guardrails. Now it's coming back and they used to be debt to GDP ratio. Now it's the the, uh, the, the GDP ratio versus borrowing. You, you, it's all mumbo jumbo to the average Canadian out there. The question really is, are we spending too much money? And the answer is yes. And here's what concerns us. We genuinely agree with the, any government that says that we're here to help the Canadian people. 
the way you help the Canadian people is not by making them broke, is not by spending more than you make, it's by growing our economy so that the programs that were that are being announced have long-term validity and sustainability. There is no point announcing something if it's going to get cut or cancelled outright because somewhere down the road we're not going to be able to afford it. And as far as the comparisons go, I can give you 20 other stats about where we're struggling on growth and so forth. I think what Canadians are more concerned with is what's happening in Canada? What's happening at home? What are the things that we can do to control our own destiny and not be worried about, you know, are we taller than the shortest person in the in the room? That doesn't matter. You're still short. Okay. Well, you know, one thing that uh, your organization is suggesting is to limit the cost uh, that it takes to service Canada's debt. And, and by that, you want to limit the federal government uh, to no more than 10% of the revenue going to service that debt. Wouldn't that mean massive cuts to, to actually reach that target? No, it's, again, there's two sides to this ledger here, right? Let's grow our economy. Let's work on having a long-term growth strategy. Let's work on our productivity challenges. Why don't business and government and labor and indigenous groups come together and say, where can we uh, find, the, find the opportunity to bring about economic growth? You know, uh, well, I travel the world and people say, you got it must be so great to be Canada. You have everything the world really wants. You've got energy, you've got food, you've got critical minerals, you've got proximity to the United States, you've got trade agreements, you know, you've got clean electricity, you're an innovative society, you've got immigration policy. Let's use these assets in our country to put more emphasis on the growth side of the agenda. It seems to me that this is a government that spent far too time, too much time in trying to basically redistribute uh, the, the, the wealth that's trying to be created as opposed to expand the pie and and grow it. Okay, expand the pie and grow it, but that does take time. And right now, up against that are housing concerns and child care and dental care, EV battery plants. Are those not worthwhile to, to go into debt in the short term to try to bring about the kind of growth that you're referencing? Well, look, when it comes for some of these programs were already announced in a in previous uh, iterations of budgets with a fiscal framework of some kind. What we're concerned by here is there is no fiscal framework. You cannot say that we're going to do be fiscally responsible, but not tell me how, you know. And so what we've been saying is very specifically what the so-called David Dodge model is. Just bring your spending under control so that borrowing costs don't increase or are not in excess of 10 percent of your revenues. This way, it forces you to have some discipline on the program announcements and make sure that we have the growth to support it. Currently, as things are tracking, I think it's very convenient that this year the deficit is showing to be exactly what was forecasted just nine months ago. It's the first time they've ever been able to do that, actually. But it looks more like moving, you know, moving some a shell game here or a little bit of gerrymandering going on because the deficit grows uh, as as we go further down the road. In fact, you know, we've been using the analogy, and I know others have picked it up, that you're about to spend the same amount of money on borrowing costs that you're spending on healthcare. That is a shocking statistic for Canadians to hear. Goldie, always appreciate the thoughts. I thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me, Michael. That's Goldie Hyder. The eyes of many world leaders will be on the Israel and Gaza border tomorrow because early in the morning, some 50 Israeli hostages are expected to be returned by Hamas. In exchange, 150 Palestinian women and children currently in Israeli custody will also be released and a four-day ceasefire will begin. News that was welcomed here in Ottawa. This uh, humanitarian pause is what Canada and others have been calling for for weeks now. It is going to allow for 
uh, hostages to finally uh, be liberated. It's going to allow for significant amounts of humanitarian aid to get into uh, the civilians and the innocent people in Gaza who desperately need it. Uh, and it's going to allow for protecting of civilian life, including hopefully getting even more Canadians and, and foreign nationals out. This is an important bit of progress, but we have to redouble our efforts now to get towards a uh, lasting peace. Now, that lasting peace is something I discussed with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. He took part in the Halifax International Security Forum this past weekend. And while some Israeli leaders no longer believe in a two-state solution, it is a framework which Ehud Barak believes must be revisited, but only after the removal of Hamas. You were saying in the discussion that ultimately you believe in the two-state solution, but of course the current Prime Minister has expressed serious reservations about it. What do you say to Netanyahu's reservation to a two-state solution? Uh, first of all, uh, the first thing that I said in, uh, in this session is that it's not the right time. Our youngsters, uh, when, while we are speaking, it's already night in Israel, they are getting into the tunnel, getting into those buildings where can can expect a a kind of a terrorist behind every corner they have to, to be the first to pull the trigger. That's not the right timing, so to speak, to talk about future intentions in the in the uh, longer term. But uh, having having said that, I might say, might say that uh, Tanyahu is wrong and I'm right. That's, <laughs> I cannot say a lot more. <laughs> the pro problem is that uh, he is slightly more than half of the uh, people and he's prime minister and I'm a former prime minister but I'm not active now in politics and and somewhat less than half of the public support my position. I think that they are blind uh, to the realities and when I explain that Israel uh, should be interested in two-state uh, solution not because of justice for the Palestinians because of our own uh, interest our own uh, future, our own security, our own identity. We need it because Israel is established in order to become a Zionist democratic, liberal democracy, I believe, um, in its nature. And that's, that's not the case going to happen if we, if we control over the whole area, it will become either non-Jewish or non-democratic and neither of these. Uh, is the Zionist dream. If you were to follow the, the, the current course that we're seeing uh, Israel carry out in its war against Hamas, what do you think will happen? Will Israel have to reoccupy? Will it have to go to an international force? How, how do you see this unfolding? It's not, no one in Israel really intends, uh, probably ex except for the extreme right-wing uh, kind of uh, zealots. Uh, no one expects Israel to take over and hold the, the Gaza Strip with, with over 2 million Palestinians for the next 10 or 20 years. So we all think of making the operation. Uh, however, it uh, might take, it probably take several months to fully uh, make sure that, uh, that Hamas military capabilities had been erased and it has no uh, capacity to reign over the, uh, over the Gaza Strip. So uh, we think of this term as a term that we will be there, not occupied forever, but we will be there for several months. And I personally believe that the right answer for the day after is that while we are fighting there, 
together with the Americans and the whole axis of moderate forces in the Middle East, the ma- ma- mainly the Sunnite um, autocracies, uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan, uh, MBS, Saudi Arabia, MBZ, the Emirates, probably in a different way also the Qataris because their finance cloud, financial cloud can help. Uh, that they, the Arab uh, group will establish a multinational Arab force that uh, will be ready to take over the um, Gaza Strip from us once we, we destroy the Hamas capabilities uh, for a limited period, let's say three or six months, backed by Arab leaders, also probably even uh, United uh, Nations Security Council resolution if the Russians will not veto it and uh, take over the Gaza Strip and bring back the original owner, so to speak, uh, internationally recognized owner, which is the Palestinian Authority. They are now in the West Bank, but bring them there and help them probably stay another three months or to help them to make sure that they are capable of holding it. That might be the solution. Of course, it contradicts the present government position that they do not want to feed them. And I think that they are wrong, and <laughs> I'm right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the only realistic uh, solution uh, that will uh, save uh, Israel the experience of coming once again to control uh, two million or whatever uh, Palestinians and take care of everything from social security, education, sewage, uh, supply for babies or for hospitals. So that's should be reigned by Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And of course we should make uh, many arrangements on the, on the security side, both uh, along the uh, barrier, probably a uh, cordon sanitaire a few hundred meters beyond the, the um, barrier, to make sure that uh, what we experienced in the, uh, October 7 cannot ever repeat itself. That's our main interest. To make sure that this uh, phenomenon of seven uh, the slaughtering of 1,200 uh, people, abduction of another 250, cannot never, uh, uh, cannot happen ever again. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, a precursor to that, and you said it, is to make sure that Hamas loses control, never gets back power again in, in Gaza. Yeah, yeah. With both your political and your military background, what is that actually going to take? Because right now, we're as reported, uh, thousands of civilian casualties as a result of this operation. What will it actually take, do you think, to get rid of Hamas and make sure they don't take power again in Gaza? It will take more time and uh, toil and sweat and tears and blood. That's the nature of war. I hope a minimal uh, loss of death toll for ourselves. And I hope also that that, uh, minimal damage to civilians who who do not have uh, did, did nothing wrong except for being held under gun to the temple by the Hamas people. Uh, out of the over one million people in the northern part of the Gaza Strip moved to the southern part, already moved on, on foot. It's not unlike Canada, we are a tiny, tiny uh, country, much, I, I believe, even smaller than Nova Scotia but um, a very tiny, so in the Gaza Strip, which is uh, probably 120 square miles, they can walk on, on, on foot uh, from the northern part to the southern part, and you can see it on TV every afternoon. Uh, 
several, several thousand, probably tens of thousands are moving. Now there are only 150,000. Uh, people held under a uh, point of a gun by the Hamas as a human shield. But 150,000 is a lot too many to, to be killed in, in attack. So we are doing our best to minimize it, to avoid it. We do not enjoy uh, seeing uh, innocent Palestinians being buried, but we have a compelling imperative to make sure that Hamas is destroyed physically and as a, as a potential uh, power to, to reign over the Gaza Strip. And I pref uh, prefer to see Palestinians coming there and taking control, backed by the Arab world. They've been financed with the, by the Arab world to develop, to, to rebuild, to, to, to create of it a normal place for human beings to live our conversation with the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. You can see our full discussion this weekend right here on CPAC on a special edition of Profile as we focus on the Halifax International Security Forum. We also have interviews with former Ukrainian Ambassador to Canada Andriy Shevchenko and former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. A day after the government delivered its fall economic statement and the head of Canada's central bank says high interest rates have helped get inflation under control. Tiff Macklin defending the rate hikes telling a group of business leaders in St. John, New Brunswick today the bank had no choice but to raise interest rates to deal with the soaring cost of living. This tightening of monetary policy is working and interest rates may now be restrictive enough to get us back to price stability. Macklin says while there are positive signs in the Canadian economy, if high inflation persists, the bank may need to raise its rates again. An update to share tonight on Canada's space program. Innovation, Science and Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne announcing today that Jenny Gibbons will serve as the backup astronaut for Canada's mission to the moon. She will replace fellow Canadian Jeremy Hansen if he is unable to take part. And Joshua Cutrick will embark on a six-month mission on the International Space Station. When he takes off sometime in 2025, he will be just the fourth Canadian astronaut to take part in a long-duration mission on the ISS. And just weeks after unveiling sweeping changes to its healthcare system, the Alberta government says nurse practitioners will soon be able to open their own clinics and take on patients. It's an effort to recruit more highly skilled workers and improve access to primary care providers. By creating opportunities for nurse practitioners to open their own offices, we have the added ability to add more primary care providers for Alberta families. This would represent a significant positive outcome for tens of thousands of patients. Actually, we were just talking about it, hundreds of thousands of patients, in fact. The Alberta government says the new model will be in place by early 2024. And that is our program for this Wednesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics is back tomorrow. But up next, c'était Bejin avec l'Essentiel.